been here a long time. I've been here about 15 years, and I've never been at another church. I've been here a long time. I've been here about 15 years, and I've never been at another church. I'm anywhere else. So all of my theological problems, they're a result of this church. <laughs> so if you have a problem with anything I say, it's all Rob's fault. Uh, real quick, does everybody have one of these? Did you get one of these when you came in? Can you see what it says? Can somebody tell me what it says? Remaining serve opportunities. So this is a list of remaining serve opportunities that we have that you can sign up for. Most of them, I think all of them are with our children's ministry. Um, just be aware of those. Um, consider those. Pray about those. Um, don't expect that it's someone else who's going to fill those slots. Genuinely pursue pursue God about whether or not he would have you serve in those places. So uh, be aware of that. And Daniel will mention it again at the end of the service. So you'll have another opportunity to suffer conviction. Um, so don't let it pass you by. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. Uh, this morning we will be continuing in our study in the book of Acts. We will be in chapter 24. And chapter 24 is like the second episode of a five-part miniseries. And that miniseries will finish out the book of Acts. So in, in chapter 23 to 28, there's a, a story at the end of the book about Paul going to Rome. That really is kind of the idea, that that's the trajectory he's on, he's going to Rome. And so part one is Paul's arrest at the temple and his trial before the Sanhedrin. We talked about that last week. Part two is Paul's trial before Felix, the governor of the province of Caesarea. We'll talk about that this week. Next week, we'll see part three. That's Paul's trial before Festus, the governor, the second governor of Caesarea. That tells you uh, how long Paul ends up being there. And then part four is Paul's trial before King Agrippa. Part five, Paul's voyage to and arrival at Rome. So this morning we will cover episode two. But as we get started, let's do kind of a short recap of episode one. So this is where you'd hear previously on the book of Acts. Paul was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem when some Jews from Asia came and they stirred up trouble for him. And he was detained by the Roman military, but then tried by the Sanhedrin. The proceedings ended in shambles after the apostle Paul drops the R-bomb. He mentions the resurrection and a theological riot ensues because of a division that's among the council there about whether or not there will be a resurrection. Paul is nearly torn in half. The Roman military intervenes again. He is then transported under heavy military guard to another city to face the governor of the province, Felix. So we see that just what was promised by God is happening. Paul is bound according to the prophecy. He is testifying about the way to high officials. And he will ultimately end up before King Agrippa and then Nero, the emperor, as we're told from church history. So Paul is on a conveyor belt of history, moving exactly where God wants him to be. And God has a plan that includes all nations and all peoples. And we've seen, that, we've seen that develop over and over again in the book of Acts. And so Luke is showing us that the gospel is for the least and the greatest. It's for everybody. And so you remember the first person to come to faith after the church comes together in Acts chapter 2, who is it? It's a lame beggar. The, 
the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. Well, at the end of the book of the uh, at the end of the book of Acts, what do we see? The last person to hear the gospel is going to be King Agrippa, one of the highest people in society. And so, what Luke is doing is painting this picture for us that the gospel is for all people everywhere. We've seen all types of people, all types of people on the human spectrum. They need the gospel. Rich to poor, Jew to Gentile, ruling class to working class, all people everywhere. And so this morning, I want us to pray together as we approach God, as we approach, God, as we approach his word, that we would be committed to seeing and helping all types of people come to Christ, because that's really Luke's intention for us this morning. So Father, we do pray that. We ask that your word would have its way with us, that we would submit to it, we would be transformed by it. We would be humbled by your word, and we would see that there is no human being that is free from the need of the gospel, and that none would intimidate us, none would be too small, none would be too great, too far away from you to hear about your plan in reaching all people everywhere because of what Christ has done on the cross. So God, thank you for letting us be in your family, bringing us into your family, and let us, letting us be a part of your mission. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So let's read Acts 24, verses 1 through 4. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their, ca their case against the apostle Paul. And when and when he had summoned Tertullius, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. I'm a, a big fan of courtroom dramas. 12 Angry Men, I love it. Great movie. Law and Order minus Ice-T is awesome. <laughs> Matlock, classic. And so what we have before us this morning is, is a court proceeding. It's a trial. It's a, a courtroom drama, if you will. And so imagine with me this morning that we're sitting in on these proceedings. And so we're going to imagine that all you people over here are those people that have come down for Paul's trial. Ananias the Jews, all of those folks who, Tertullus, the lawyer who will make the case. This will be uh, kind of the judge's bench here. Felix will be sitting here. And then Paul will be over here all by himself. So you guys kind of get to be Paul, okay? You are kind of a collective Paul. I don't know what y'all are. <laughs> so we see this drama unfolding before us. And, and so Paul has, has been waiting for five days to face his accusers. And they make their way into town, and evidently they have the first crack at laying their case before Felix, the governor, who's also a judge. He has the responsibility of judging cases while governing at the same time. So, so Paul is called in, and evidently he's alone, no entourage, no lawyer, all by himself. And so the formal accusations begin with a formal address to the judge, much like we would say, Your Honor, they kind of lengthen that. And, and Tertullus, he, he takes a moment to express the gratitude that he and the Jewish nation have for the stability and reforms that Felix has procured for them. 
He highlights peace as kind of the primary benefit that Felix has ensured. And, and so like a good lawyer, he's already building a case. And, and he's trying to, to build unity or create an alliance through shared value. Because one of the main thrusts, one of the main charges against Paul is going to be that he's this kind of riot-inducing troublemaker. He's a peace breaker. And so in their society, that could be a capital offense. And so they want to establish that Paul is riotous. He's, he's causing problems everywhere. And so Tertullus is trying to get from the outset, he's trying to get Felix on his side because that's a major value for them. Peace, stability, no riots. That's one of the main jobs of a governor. We saw this with, the, uh, with Herod, the way that he tried Jesus. That was one of the main things he wanted to do was to, to put down a riot. So in verse 4, we see Tertullus assures Felix that this case is open and shut. So much so that it's going to be brief. And so the word detain that we see here, it could, it could be rendered as to make weary or to make tired. And so in essence, he's saying, let's keep this short so you're not worn out or distracted from your most important work of peacekeeping. So we see Tertullus is really appealing to Felix as a ruler more than a judge. He's speaking to him more in those terms. And so then Acts 24 and 5 through 9, we see this. He continues his, uh, his case. He's, he starts to lay it out. For we have found this man, the Apostle Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So this group of folks over here, they're, they're crying out against Paul. And Tertullus is laying out this case against Paul. And so Luke summarizes this, these proceedings in four major points. He says this. First, Paul is the chief of a sect from Nazareth that makes riots in every corner of Rome. And if you don't stop him, this cancer is going to destroy our stability and peace. That's the, the main idea that he's making in that first section. And so you, you, you remember what uh, Peter says to, to Andrew, does anything good come from Nazareth? So it, it, would, it would make sense, right, that this, these folks come from Nazareth, because that's a pretty bad part of, part of the country. Secondly, he would have made the temple unclean, but we stopped him. That's the second major piece of the argument. Third, these charges are undeniable. Just ask him yourself. He feels so confident in his case that if the judge asks Paul, that Paul will just say, yeah, they're right. He, he wouldn't even be able to deny what the charges are. And then lastly, we have lots of witnesses. There's lots and lots and lots of people saying the same things that we're saying. And so those are the four major pieces of what Tertullus, the, the case that he's arguing before Felix. So Luke cuts to the chase, he gives the necessary details, and then he moves on to Paul's response. In verses 10 through 16, we see this. <coughs> and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So with a simple nod, Paul is given the opportunity to respond. He probably stood up to make his response. And he begins with a formal address of respect for the governor. He appeals to the tenure and experience of Felix as a judge. And and it's as if he is saying, you have a lot of experience as a judge, so I am sure you can see how weak this accusation is. He joyfully responds because he stands before a judge who should be able to see what is really going on. You'll notice he also limits his address to the role of judge. He doesn't talk about his rulership or things that he does outside of the court. He speaks to him primarily as a judge. And he's doing that as to say, hey, let's stay focused on the task at hand. Just judgment rather than political posturing. He's trying to constrain what Felix should be doing. He shouldn't be thinking about things out there. He should be thinking about just judgment. So Paul's representing himself, and he begins to attack the charges that are being made head-on, point by point. And so first, Paul limits the scope of the charges by mentioning Jerusalem. So Felix would not have had jurisdiction over all these places that he's being accused of doing things. So he says, look, I was in Jerusalem. So, hey, let's just focus on what happened in Jerusalem. And there he was not involved in any riotous activity, neither in the temple or the city or the synagogue. In addition, he came to Jerusalem to worship at the temple as is custom for the Jews. He had no intention of any riots or anything like that. He just simply came up to Jerusalem. And that's a first piece of the argument that he's making. And secondly, he moves on to address the charges that his case is open and shut or undeniable. He says, they have no proof for anything they say. And then this fits with verse 11, where he said that all that he's going to say is verifiable because it's been less than two weeks. So credible witnesses can still be found. You'll notice this is, these are basically transcripts from a proceeding. Luke is telling us exactly what happened, how Paul responded point by point by point. Then he does this really strange thing. He makes a confession. And so just a side note, if you're ever on trial, never say, I want to make a confession. Not the best approach. But Paul has a a specific design in doing this. And so he could have continued to kind of play this thing out like a Jew, worshiping at the temple, minding his own business, and then all of a sudden these fanatics arrested him. He could have played it out like that and probably done pretty well. But he doesn't do that. He takes the opportunity to explain exactly what being a follower of the way really means. He wants to clarify, what is this way? And that that would be the name that they probably gave themselves. Other people called them Christians, At Antioch, we see the term the way used maybe six times in the book of Acts. 
And it's kind of the, the, the way in which they talk about themselves, the way. And so what he wants to do is to explain what, what is this way? What is it all about? And so this is, this is dangerous because if he sounds too different from Judaism, then the charge that he is a part of a sect that could be established, resulting in trouble for the church. But if, it's not, uh, if it has no distinctions from Judaism, then there's no need to shift alliances to Christ. And so what he, what he does here is, is he kind of tries to walk two pitfalls. And so through some through important theological nuance, he explains that he worships the God of our fathers, most likely a reference to Abraham and the other patriarchs, maybe even uh, their own fathers, their own families. He's, he's making the point, I worship the Lord, Yahweh, not some different God, the one true God. And then he affirms the Jewish scriptures by saying that he believes everything laid down in the writings of Moses and the other prophets. And so he clarifies the object of his worship as the Lord. And he establishes the foundation of that worship as believing what God wrote about himself for his people. Paul is in effect saying that he worships the one true God in the one true way. And believing, and he does that by believing what God says. And that that belief results in an enduring hope in God that is greater than death and judgment. And so, basically, he is saying, same God, same book, same hope. So, at some level, he's taking Judaism and saying, no, 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 no. This is where it has always been going. It has always been going towards the Christ. And Jesus is that Christ ultimately is what Paul will proclaim later. And so you see that he's, he's walking a very thin line here, making some very clear statements about our faith. Paul is telling you, he's talking to you and I about what does your faith have to do with the Old Testament? How are they connected? How, do, how does the way and, and Judaism, what, what do they have to do with one another? And this is, this is very important for us to examine and to understand exactly what Paul is saying. Again, Paul comes back to the resurrection. I think this is for a few reasons that he, he gets back to the resurrection. It's central. It's a central belief of the Christian faith because Christ was raised from the dead to show that his work on the cross was sufficient to bring sinful man to a holy God. The resurrection is central. Is central. And it shows Christ's power over sin and death. And furthermore, our being raised from the dead is dependent on him being raised from the dead. Second, it's a common theme of the Old Testament and therefore a part of believing the scripture. So he's saying, look, we've always believed this. Resurrection has always been part of what it means to believe God. And then lastly, mentioning the resurrection for Paul is a, uh, in these proceedings is a win-win. Because if the Jews object, as they did in the past, they will look like a confused sectarian mob, right? And that really is beneficial to Paul. And if, if, if they don't object, then he in fact has the same hope as the Jews, meaning the way is not a sect. 
So this really is a win-win for Paul. He's able to clarify what it is that the way believes, and he's also able to make some advances in his uh, overall trial. And so as he's doing all of this, he adds this footnote to his confession, explaining his continual work to have a clear conscience before God and man. He says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. This idea of taking pains is like striving or working, lots of exertion. He takes pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. Paul seems to be Paul seems to be linking his continual work to have a clear conscience to his explanation of the way. Christianity or the way assumes a resurrection and a coming judgment. And on account of this, Paul wants to be sure that he is sure that he is sure about what he believes and what he tells others to believe. Because if he is wrong, then he will be judged because judgment is coming. So he wants a clear conscience about what he believes. But if he's right, then all people will be judged, including his Jewish countrymen who have not embraced Jesus. Paul wants to be clear in his own conscience about what he believes and how he lives or teaches before others. And so I'm understanding through my study this to work at two levels. First, about what Paul believes. His conscience before God and man is clear regarding Jesus being the promised one of the Old Testament. Even though his countrymen persecute him from town to town, they call him a traitor, insisting he has misunderstood the scriptures and that he is leading people away from God. Even though all that is happening, Paul's conscience is clear. He has studied the word. He's not taking someone else's word for it. And he can reason from the Old Testament why he is confident Jesus is the Christ. Paul is staking everything on this. He's given up everything because of the way he's reading the Old Testament. Because of the way that he's understanding Christ and how he fits into the Old Testament and that Jesus is that Christ. His conscience is clear because of the work that he's done to understand what he believes. In 2 Timothy, we see this. This is the end of Paul's life. And one of the first things that he says in what may have been one of his last letters is, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors with a clear conscience. Even at the end of his life, he's saying, same God, same hope, same book. I worship the God of my ancestors. And I'm clear in my conscience about that. This is a major piece of, of what it means for Paul to have a sincere faith. That he is he's clear. Even though people say to him, you're wrong, you're mistaken, you're leading people away. He says, my conscience is clear. The second piece of this is that Paul believes judgment is coming. And when he says the resurrection of the just and the unjust back in our 
our Acts passage, he's intending to say a resurrection to judgment and punishment. So the second aspect of his clear conscience is how he lives. He lives as not to cause anyone to stumble away from Christ. And that all hear what they need to hear in order to know Christ and be rescued from judgment. He wants his conscience to be clear. He strives for his conscience to be clear about what he tells others. So Paul's life is consumed with telling others about Christ because he knows that without the rescuer, men and women and children will suffer in hell for eternity. He feels responsible. His conscience speaks to him of that. And he knows that every person will bow down to Christ or they will burn up for eternity. And this hard truth has driven Paul from place to place to place to place to place. In 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5, we, we see this statement. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's fear wrapped up, fear for other people wrapped up in Paul's trying to persuade people to come to Christ. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And so Paul even wants his hearers, those who who follow Christ alongside him, to have clear consciences about what he is telling them, that his message is from God. He has clarity of conscience before God and men. And so how about us? How about you? Do you have a clear conscience about what you believe? A sincere faith rooted in God's word? Are you clear on that? Do you know what it says or are you just taking my word for it? Do you just trust Larry or some professor? Or is this faith your faith, a sincere faith that you have pursued. Lazy faith cannot offer a clear conscience because you're always having to take someone else's word for it. Are you convinced that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you know who he says he is? Are you borrowing the faith of your parents or your brother or your spouse or your professors? Is it your faith or are you lending it from someone else? Has it become yours so that you have a sincere faith and a clear conscience about your relationship to God? Are you doing the the Christianity church thing because it's beneficial or normal to you? Are you seeking something in Christianity other than Christ? Some of you have been in this church for for years and you still have not done anything with Jesus. You've been hanging around. I don't know who you are. I don't have anybody in mind. But I know that I should say this to you. You've been hanging around. And your convictions have not driven you into baptism. They haven't driven you into church membership. They've not driven you into service of others. And my question is, is your conscience clear about that? When you stand before God, are you clear that he's okay with that? 
Or does your conscience bear witness against you that God would have you do something different? Have you asked God what he thinks about these things by reading and studying his word? Do you have a clear conscience about telling others how to be free from sin and hell and death? Our, at North Wake, our least attended life change class is evangelism. So what that means is two things. Either everyone here knows how to share the gospel, right? And they're all about it and they're out doing it. That's why they are not in that class. Or they don't want to go to that class. We don't want to go to that class because if I know how to share the gospel, then that means I should be sharing the gospel. We have to deal with that. We have to ask ourselves those questions. Why is that so? Do you know how to communicate Christ clearly? And are you doing that? Do you want to do that? Are you motivated to do that by the fact that judgment is coming? Have you worked to make sure that people in your life and your family and your neighborhood and the world that they hear the good news of Christ? Is your conscience clear about that? My conscience is not clear about that. That bothers me. I know that I should strive greater than I do to see people come to Christ. And I don't want to turn that off. Could you stand before God and man, before God and man and say, I did everything in my power to reach people with the gospel? That's a clear conscience. I'm not there. But I pray by God's grace that he will move me towards that. A few years ago, I got my wife a, a used iPhone. Uh, she decided to use the GPS function for the first time in Wake Forest. She's lived here for a decade, but nevertheless, she thought that she would give it a try. So she types in our home address, and, and as she's leaving Starbucks in Wakefield, Siri commences to tell her to take a road that she didn't know existed. So she does. An old service road that existed long before iPhones maybe before phone phones. And as she makes her way down this road, it goes from gravel to grass to taller grass to small trees. And she keeps following Siri's lead. The kids are asking, Mom, is this a road? Of course it is, she says, as our Suburban pops out of the woods at the corner of Capitol Boulevard and New Falls of the Noose. And as she drives over the sidewalk, to make her way onto an actual road, all of the people in traffic are wondering, what is this caffeine-addicted homeschool mom doing? <laughs> you see, our consciences are like a GPS. They're only as good as the maps they are being given. My wife's phone had a bad map in it. It had a road in it that actually wasn't a real, a real road. But trusting the GPS? She went down that road. Paul's conscience was soaked with God's word. It was his map for belief and living. What maps are we uploading to our GPS? Does your conscience let you go places you ought not to go because your maps are no good? Are you not going places you should because your maps don't know that those places exist? Have you deleted maps you don't like? so that you don't have to hear, recalculating, or in 100 feet, make a U-turn. 
Just because you feel okay about something doesn't mean God does. And just because you don't feel okay about something doesn't mean he has a problem with it. You should ask him. Seek answers in his word. Download good maps. Having a clear conscience in Paul's mind is much greater than what movies you watch or whether or not you drink alcohol. It can be that, but it certainly should be more. So let's seek clear consciences about what we believe and what we tell others about Christ. Though Paul doesn't have a a throng of witnesses chanting his case, as the Jews do, he has a clear conscience that is ready to stand in the final judgment. He's clear. Acts 17 17 through 21 continues Paul's uh, rebuttal. Now, after several days, this is him speaking again. Now, after several days, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among, among them, it is re- with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul explains that he was doing what Jews typically do when they come into Jerusalem. Not only was he intend, not intending to defile the temple, as his accusers say, but he was partaking in a purification vow. He's actually doing the opposite of what they say that he did. There was no problem until some Jews from Asia show up. And in this section, he makes two strong legal appeals. First, that his accusers should be there to make accusation. This is common sense to us. If your accuser doesn't show up, how can there be accusations made? Second, that the witnesses who are present can only speak in reference to what happened when he stood before the Sanhedrin. And he knows that they have no real charge to bring against him. They simply disagree among themselves about uh, the idea of the resurrection. So there really is no case being brought against Paul, as Paul says. And so before another theological riot can develop, Felix shuts it all down. He kind of puts the lid on the thing. And so in 22 to 23, we see this. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Luke insists that Felix, having a knowledge of the way, substantial enough uh, to understand what was going on, he puts off the Jews. And he makes it seem as if he needs the tribune from Jerusalem to add testimony before he can make his decision, before he can decide the case. But this is the reality, and we'll see this later in the book of Acts. He knows Paul is innocent, but he knows he needs the support of the Sanhedrin. And so like a good politician, he stalls. He puts them off. He tries to put some time and space between the present and 
when he needs to make his decision. And so Paul's put under the care of a centurion. He's given a bit of liberty. He can still have contact with his friends and family. And so essentially what has happened is Felix has put Paul under house arrest. He really is just being detained for further uh, trials. And so he's, he's able to move around. He's able to have contact with friends and family. Um, let's look at 24 to 27. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and, and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So after a few days, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, they drop in on Paul. Luke makes it clear that the intention was to get a bribe. At first, it seems strange that this high official would think that he could get a bribe from a traveling preacher like Paul. But don't forget, Paul has just gone to Jerusalem with a pretty substantial offering from the churches in Asia to give to the church in Jerusalem. So it's probably the case that uh, Felix heard about that offering and thought that he could get some money out of the Apostle Paul. But... Similar to Peter and John with the beggar in chapter 3, Paul gives neither silver or gold, but he gives what he has. He gives the gospel. So Luke says that they heard him speak of faith in Christ Jesus. This statement, faith in Christ Jesus, is really significant because it tells us that Paul is holding out the idea that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And this would be common a common theme or a familiar concept to Felix and his Jewish wife. They would know about the Messiah. They would know what the Old Testament says. And so he's urging them to have faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the promised one. And so we get a glimpse in how he does that when Luke says he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. So for those of you who have done some sort of evangelism training, I'm sure you remember the part where uh, reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment, I'm sure you remember where that comes into your evangelism strategy, right? Isn't that like the first three parts of the four spiritual laws? No, it's not. And this is not common for us to think this way about evangelism. And actually, when we look at that, we think, what is he doing? And so at first glance, these three topics, they, they seem unrelated to faith in Christ Jesus. But it seems that Paul is trying to establish in Felix and Drusilla a need for Christ. And we can assume that Paul is insisting that they have a, a need for personal righteousness or, or moral perfection, that, that it's impossible to have that because man lacks self-control. And that that will result in judgment from God because all sin is against God. And so this line of reasoning evidently alarmed Felix. And some translations say that he was afraid. So whatever it is that Paul is saying to him, 
pushes Felix back. It alarms him. It makes him afraid. Modern sensibilities may tell us that this is an evangelism fail. But if we think back on Paul striving to have a clear conscience, it makes total sense. Because Paul wants to make sure that Felix knows what is at stake. His very eternal existence is on the line. I'm convinced that many times our friends and our neighbors, they don't consider Christ because they are not convinced they need him. And so because God is portrayed as this uh, all-benevolent, mostly impotent, partial judge who lets things slide, they don't need him because there is no judgment. Most Americans think that God is grading on a curve that's bent somehow in their favor. And more and more the phrase, only God can judge me, is becoming the cultural mantra as if judgment of God will be somehow more lenient than man's judgment. Paul is proclaiming a message that leaves high-ranking government officials, judges, in terror, afraid, alarmed. The good news only makes sense in light of the terror of being punished by God for all eternity. It is such good news that I am now the object of God's favor and kindness for eternity. That's something to sing about. I've come from being an object of his wrath because of the judgment that I deserved. If the good news is that I'm saved from the earthly consequences of sin and I can now be a good person compared to others, then I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that. Or, or the gospel that in Christ I can become a nice person. I don't need that. Because I'm much worse than that. Judgment is coming on me and you and all of us because of sin. The most surprising part of all of this is that though Felix is afraid or alarmed, his response is to send Paul away. His response is, go away from me, Paul, rather than, let me hear more about this. Tell me more about that, or I should trust in Christ. Though he would sin for Paul often, it does not seem that his fear was enough to inspire in him faith. And so for two years, Felix would keep this up, calling Paul and speaking with him, only to leave Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. And so just as Felix put off a decision in Paul's trial, he puts off a decision about Paul's gospel. Paul's message to Felix is that judgment is coming. And my message to you this morning is that judgment is coming. I do not tell you that like some impersonal sign in front of a church or, or some hand-painted plaque on the interstate. I say that to you as someone that cares about you and your soul and your families and your neighbors. Judgment is coming, and there will be a day when all people are raised from the dead and judged based on how they lived and what they believed. 
And the judge who knows all things and makes judgment in complete justice will hand out sentences of eternal punishment to all those who have rebelled against him in sin. This should terrify us to our core. And words would fail us this morning to describe the horror of this reality. When we look at Revelation 20, Starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so the scene is of all people, great and small, standing before God in judgment. Their deeds are ready to testify against them. But a second book is introduced, a book of life rather than a book of death. The second book has names rather than deeds. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So as I read this passage, my heart cries out, I want my name to be written in the book of life because my deeds are worthy of judgment. That's what my heart says to this passage. I want to be written in the book of life. So what can be done for a sinner like me and like you? How does my name get into that book? And I want to show you another court scene. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. John, who also wrote Revelation or recorded Revelation, he wrote to some friends of his, some believing friends of his. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing a letter encouraging them, don't sin, flee from sin. Live holy lives in Christ. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so John offers us some insight into how someone might stand in the judgment. How one can be considered innocent. How his name might be written in that book of life. And he says that if we sin, we have an advocate or a lawyer or one who comes alongside of us to argue our case. And so the scene is much like this. One day you will be like the Apostle Paul. And there will be a judge ready to judge. And when you stand in that judgment, you can argue your own case or you can have someone argue it for you. And your deeds will stand ready to testify against you. And if your deeds are like mine, that means trouble. John tells us that there's an advocate, one who comes alongside, that will argue for us. And, and how will he argue our case? Will he argue that you are innocent of sin? No, because that would be a lie. 
He will argue that you are a sinner. But that that advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for your sin. And that's the idea of this word propitiation. That Christ is our propitiation. That he is the atoning sacrifice. The wrath, exhausting, removing, bearing sacrifice. The penalty for your sin. That he is that. And that he took the wrath of God on himself at the cross so that you could stand justified in Christ. So as the gavel of God comes down, he will declare his people innocent, not because of their deeds, but because we are in Christ. In the judgment, my hope is this. God will be ready to judge me guilty. But Christ will come alongside of me and he will say, this one is mine. I paid the penalty for his sin. Therefore, he is innocent. It has been paid. It is finished. He is mine. I know his name. And so when that gavel comes down about me, my father, the just judge, will say, innocent. Because, not because of what I've done, but because what Christ has done and I am in him. I get his righteousness. He has shared that with me. That is good news. That is what God has done about the judgment. He has not stood back. He has not waited. But 1 John 4 tells us that in love he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not because we loved him, but because he loved us. That is good news, and that is the only hope that we have in the judgment. That is the only hope that your neighbors have in the judgment. That is the only hope that your children have in the judgment. Tell them of Christ. Teach them of Christ. Lead them to Christ. Let us not shrink back because of the judgment, but let us respond in the sharing of Christ, the remembering of Christ. And so we're going to sing, and we're going to sing in response to this great news. And I want to ask you if you would take a moment to, to reflect on your conscience. Do you have a sincere faith? When you stand in the judgment, have you placed all of your hope and faith in Christ such that he would come alongside and say, this one is mine? Have you done everything that you can do as far as it's up to you to share Christ with the people that God has put in your life? Submit those things to him. Don't turn off the GPS. Listen to it. Let him recalculate you. Turn around if you need to. Pursue him. He loves you. He cares for you. He has done everything we need to stand in the judgment and to call the people that we love away from the judgment. Let us pray together. Father, I ask.